Good afternoon. It's a blessing to be here. It's an encouragement uh, to be able to spend time with our brethren. We're thankful for many visitors uh, and the time that we're able to spend in worship to our Lord. If your Bibles aren't already open to 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, I'd ask that you turn them there now. If, if you have your Bibles open there throughout our lesson today, you'll be able to, to follow along. We're going to mostly work our way through this passage uh, while referencing some other passages that will be on the screen as well. Out of all the different weapons that are in Satan's arsenal against us, one very strong weapon that I think we need to, to be conscious of is the tool of discouragement against us. And I think one reason that discouragement can be uh, such a dangerous vice for us is that it doesn't usually uh, or, or maybe most strongly target the weak and the apathetic. But those who are very zealous for the Lord are often targets for Satan's discouragement. The more zealous and dedicated we are to the Lord, the more potential damage Satan can do by causing us to grow discouraged. The higher we fly, the farther we fall. And there can be many different reasons for discouragement, but I think all discouragement has some common characteristics, maybe feelings of failure, disillusionment, hopelessness, feeling that further effort is pointless, feeling like we're all alone, that no one else cares, no one else understands, no one has worked as hard or been as zealous as we have, but it's all been for nothing. It's been pointless. We haven't accomplished anything. There's some great men of faith throughout the Bible that experience those types of feelings, and, and perhaps none more strongly than Elijah, as we see here in 1 Kings chapter 19. And as we read this chapter, I think it's helpful to remember what's just happened in Elijah's life. Uh, Elijah certainly was not apathetic to the Lord in the least, was he? He was extremely zealous for the Lord. For three years, Elijah has been provided for by the Lord through this time of drought that God prophesied through him. And God provided for him through ravens coming to the brook where he was staying, through the widow of Zarephath and the miraculous provision of God there. And then Elijah had a showdown, a mountaintop moment at Mount Carmel where he goes against all the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal cry out to their God trying to get him to send fire down onto this altar. And they cry all day long, nothing happens. And finally, Elijah comes along and he says, well, what you need to do is you need to pour water on it. <laughs> now, that's not exactly what he said, but he pours water on this altar, time and time again, jugs full of water, and then he prays to the Lord. And God sends down fire and consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar itself and all the water that he had poured on it. You think if there's any time in Elijah's life that he is going to feel like he has accomplished great things, that the Lord is, is working through him, surely it would be this moment, right? And yet, what's the result? Instead of there being a spiritual revival in Israel, instead of people turning back to the Lord in droves, all that Elijah gets is a death threat from Queen Jezebel. And so you can understand where Elijah is at emotionally here. He's been very zealous for the Lord. He seemingly has accomplished great things for the Lord, but he feels like it's all for naught. 
And so Elijah flees south into the wilderness, wanders for 40 days until he reaches Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai and enters into a cave. And we see his statement here in verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. Sometimes discouragement is lonely zeal. Here, Elijah had been very zealous for the Lord. But here he feels like he hasn't accomplished a single thing. Like it's pointless to go on. Nothing that he's done has made any difference. Well, how does Elijah get out of the cave and back into the Lord's work? What, what does God say to him to bring him back from this point of discouragement? What was it that Elijah needed to hear? What is it that we need to hear when we have moments of discouragement such as this? I hope today by looking at 1 Kings chapter 19, we can be more equipped to deal with times of discouragement in our lives. Because certainly they will come. Even after our mountaintop moments, many times we will feel discouraged that we haven't accomplished anything, that our efforts have been pointless. I think the first thing that we need to recognize about uh, 1 Kings 19 is the Lord's compassion towards Elijah here. You notice Elijah, when he is given this, this death threat by Jezebel, he, he flees from her presence in fear, but we don't see God reprimanding Elijah the way that we might see him reprimanding a prophet like Jonah. Or we might see him interacting with somebody like Balaam. You remember the story of Jonah. Jonah is told to go and prophesy, and he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go to uh, the Assyrians, the Nineveh. And so he flees from the Lord. He runs the opposite direction. And yet what does God do? God sends a great storm out on the sea. Uh, Jonah has himself thrown overboard, and God causes a great fish to come and, and swallow him up. That's not exactly what we see with Elijah here. And it's not like Balaam either. You remember Balaam is going to, to see if God might allow him to curse the Israelites. And God sets an angel up in the way to prevent him from going. And he doesn't see it, but the donkey does. Well, notice the angel in Elijah's case is not preventing Elijah from taking this journey. He's not trying to turn Elijah back. What does the angel do here? The angel strengthens him for this journey. It's not that Elijah here is, is running away from God, what, what God wants him to do. In fact, God is strengthening him for this journey. He provides him with the sustenance that he needs to take this journey. He, he allows him time to, to get rest. And then in the strength of that food, he goes 40 days into the wilderness, out to Mount Sinai. That might sound kind of familiar uh, 40 years in the wilderness and going to Mount Sinai sounds a lot like God's guiding and providing for his people in the wilderness, doesn't it? This interaction here is God's plan all along. Elijah doesn't end up at Mount Horeb by accident. God takes him there. So I think we need to recognize that this story, God is giving Elijah what he needs in this situation. God is showing great compassion him. It's not that he just runs 200 miles away because he thinks that Mount Sinai might be a good place to hide from Jezebel. Now, God guides him here. 
And God understands his need for rest and renewal. God is patient and compassionate towards him. And we see this throughout the scripture. Psalm 103, 13 and 14, we're reminded, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God is compassionate and understanding towards us because he understands how he created us. He understands that he formed man out of the dust, out of the clay, that our physical bodies, our our flesh are weak. God created us to need rest. God created us with a need for food. God understands our frame. He understands that our bodies need nourishment, rest, and refreshment. He understands that our hearts, our spirits need comfort and encouragement, renewal and support. And so he is gracious when we stumble, patient when we are weak, there for us to lean on when we're struggling and discouraged. He wants us to look to him for comfort and for strength. And not only does he understand because he created us, but he understands because he himself experienced it. Jesus, the son, came in the form of man, experience what we experience. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why is it that we can have confidence going to God that we can find grace, that He will be compassionate towards our weakness? Because Jesus himself experienced that weakness. He took on flesh. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to experience need and the limitations of the flesh. He certainly understands to its fullest extent what experience pain and agony in this world is like. And so God understands both our physical and emotional pain that we suffer. And he can provide sympathy and compassion towards us as we struggle. And so, brethren, it is okay for us to go through periods of discouragement. God's interaction with Elijah here, I don't believe, is primarily a reprimand to Elijah. God himself empowers Elijah to take this journey. God himself provides for him to come to Mount Sinai, where he can have this interaction. Isaiah 40, verse 30 and 31 God tells us, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Even the the strongest and most energetic among us are going to face times of discouragement, of weariness. And yet, if we wait on the Lord, which is what he desires for us to do, If we look to him, he is there to provide us strength and comfort. We can mount up with wings like eagles. We can run and not get tired. We can walk and not become weary. God provides for Elijah earlier uh, to outrun Ahab's chariot. He provides for Elijah to walk 40 days in the wilderness without becoming weary. We see God's compassion even in our struggles. But what... Does God then teach Elijah through this process? That's not all that we need to hear when we're discouraged, that God understands and that God cares. God has more to say to Elijah here. 
If we look in verse 9 through 12, we see his interaction with Elijah. He says there in verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? And as I said before, I don't think this is primarily intended to be a reprimand. In fact, as we saw, God helped him on this journey. It seems that God brought him here to Sinai. So I don't think he is questioning uh, Elijah in a, a uh, reprimanding way as, as much as um, trying to get Elijah to consider where he's at, trying to help him through these emotions that he's struggling with. You, you might even think of Elijah as coming into God's psychiatry office and God saying, okay, Elijah, what, what brings you here? What's going on? We see Elijah sharing that with him in verse 10, the way that he's feeling, the emotions that he's going through. And when Elijah expresses the emotions that he's struggling with, God's prescription is a revelation of his glory, a reminder of who he is and how he works. Read with me in verse 11 and 12. It says, So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. Or some versions say a still, small voice. What's the point of all of that? Why, why is this what Elijah needs to, to see at this point in his life? Well, I think to some extent, this is God showing Elijah his glory and his power. But I think it's more than that because it says that Elijah is very conscious that the Lord is not in the great wind. The Lord's presence is not in the earthquake, is not in the fire, but it seems in this gentle blowing, in this still small voice, it's finally where God presents himself. What's the point of all of that? You know, God certainly could have manifested himself in those ways, and he has in times past. God manifested himself on Mount Sinai as a consuming fire uh, when the, the law was given. God presented himself as a whirlwind to Job. But he chooses to present himself here in a way that seems much smaller, more meek. And insignificant. You know, considering Elijah's recent earth-shattering experience at Mount Carmel, you think uh, Elijah might have been tempted to think, well, that's where God's work is accomplished. The, these big events, these great things that, that show God's glory, you know, that, that's what it's all about. I think God is maybe turning around Elijah's perspective here. That God's not just in the the, the great, powerful things. God is showing him, I, I don't always work in wind and fire and earthquake. Some of the greatest victories in the Lord's work are going to be barely noticeable to the public eye. Seemingly small and insignificant and lowly. You know, to Elijah, this, this great mountaintop moment that he just had seemed not to bear any fruit, not to have any effect. Nobody seemed to turn back to the Lord because of that. I think God may be showing Elijah here that God doesn't just work through the great and powerful things. Even imperceptibly, God is still working through the hearts and minds of men. 
And we see this concept throughout the scriptures. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, as God through Zechariah is, is prophesying to Zerubbabel and, and encouraging him uh, in his rebuilding of the temple. We see Zechariah says after a vision about an oil lamp that is being provided, the, the oil by two olive trees nearby, he says, uh, interpreting this, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You know, Zerubbabel might have, have looked around and see the, the people, his workforce that he has, and he says, well, we, we, you know, we don't have a whole lot to work with. We, we don't have re- real strong and, and, and mighty people, and God's saying, no, that's not how it works. Not by strength or by might, by power, but by my spirit. I think that's a similar lesson to what Elijah is, is learning here. It's not just in the great wind and the earthquake and the fire. God often works in much smaller ways. His spirit empowers the weak and the lowly to accomplish great things. You you think about uh, God working through a man like Joseph, who was a prisoner and a slave in Egypt. You think about God working through David, who is a young shepherd boy. God working through the apostles, who are just uneducated fishermen. Does God often pick the, the mighty and the strong and the powerful? Very often, God uses the weak to show his power. I think that's part of the lesson uh, that Elijah is is being taught here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, we see this idea in Paul's life. Paul had some thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but he felt like it was some limitation to his service to the Lord. Certainly, if God just took this away, then I could do much greater things for the Lord then God could could be more glorified in my life. But what do we see here? God's response to him in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Many times God works in our weaknesses and in our trials, in, in the times that we feel like Nothing great and powerful and marvelous is being accomplished. That's where God's working. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the greatest demonstration of this is the gospel itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To the world, Christ crucified was foolishness, was weakness. To to the Jews, uh, a crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah. To the Greeks, uh, a dead God is a, a weak God, a failed God. That doesn't look like something great and powerful and successful and glorious within itself. But God used this foolish and weak message to bring salvation to the entire world. We need to shift our perspective. That God often doesn't work in ways that that seem great and mighty to us from our perspective. And just because we feel like these, these great things that we're doing aren't accomplishing anything doesn't mean that God's not at work. God is often at work in ways that we can barely hear, that we can barely see. 
Elijah felt that he had failed because his mountaintop moment had not yielded any visible fruit. But God didn't just work in loud and powerful ways. Elijah needed to understand that God's work was still being accomplished one heart, one soul at a time, as it always had been. When we feel that our work is not yielding the big and dramatic results that we'd like to see, we need to trust that God is still working in small, day-to-day, lowly, and imperceptible parts of life. But that's not the entirety of God's message to Elijah. Elijah's lesson doesn't end there. If you look in verse 13 through 17, God repeats his question to Elijah. In verse 13, at the end there, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And in verse 14, Elijah makes the exact same response. Now, I I don't know if that necessarily means that Elijah hasn't been moved or changed by anything that he's just seen. I, I, I wish we could hear the tone of Elijah's voice. Because I, I, I doubt that he has come in contact with the glory of God and not been changed at all by it. I think maybe what we see here is Elijah crying out to God saying, but, but I still feel this way. <laughs> yes, I, I, I understand. I see your great power. I see the way you work, but, but I still feel so discouraged. And what's God's answer in verse 15? The Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. God's prescription for Elijah, the second half of his counseling session, is for him to get to work. Yes, I understand you still feel that way. The emotions that you're dealing with are still there. You're still discouraged. But you need to get to work. You may feel like you've done all that you can do, but God is not done with you. God tells Elisha to go, to anoint these others. Many times when we get discouraged, we start wallowing in our self-pity. We... uh, rehearse our failures over and over in our minds. We think about our hardships, all the things that we're suffering. We allow our sorrows to run over and over in our minds. And that becomes our focus. But God is calling us to get outside of ourselves. Yes, you still feel that way, but you need to lay those emotions down. And you need to focus rather on the work that I've called you to do. We can't allow ourselves to be consumed by our emotions. Even when we are struggling, even in the midst of discouragement, God still has work for us to do. And we need to get up and to move at his calling. We see this attitude in the Apostle Paul. If you look in Philippians chapter 4, here in verse 11 through 13, Paul writes, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Paul, out of all the people that we can think of, would have certainly had many reasons to be discouraged. Certainly, even as he's penning these words in the book of Philippians, where is he? He's in prison in Rome. Paul, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, had gone through great persecutions. He has been beaten. He had been stoned and left for dead. He had gone through shipwreck after shipwreck. All of these things. And yet Paul says, I know the secret of being content in all circumstances. How was it that Paul could go through such suffering and still be content in the Lord? Well, that, that's where that verse 13 comes in. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Many times we, we think about that verse as accomplishing great and powerful things, like uh, Elijah's mountaintop moment. That's not what Paul's talking about here. No, God helps us through our trials and our sufferings. That's what he's strengthening us through in this context. And so we need to have that attitude of Paul. And, and what was it? What was the secret here? What was it that allowed him to be strengthened through all of this? I think ultimately it's his focus on Christ. No, notice this throughout the book of Philippians. Earlier in the same book, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, talking about his circumstances, talking about his imprisonment, Paul says here, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. What does Paul say here? Does he say, I want you to know, brethren, how much I've been suffering. I want you to know how, how bad this, this situation is in the jail here. I want you to know, you know, I, I've, I've, it's cost me a lot. That's not where his focus is. It's not on himself. He says, I want you to know about what God has accomplished through this. Yes, what God has accomplished through his imprisonment, through his suffering and his trials. Why was it that Paul could have great joy and strength? The book of Philippians is all about joy. Because his focus wasn't on himself. His focus was on Christ. And as long as the gospel was prospering, as long as God's work was being accomplished, I'll pay whatever cost it takes. It's not about me. And ultimately, I think that's what God is encouraging Elijah to do. Okay, I understand your suffering. I understand your discouragement. And I've given you this reminder to help you see this in the right perspective. But now you need to get to work. You can't continue to wallow in these emotions. And we see this again a little bit later in Philippians 1 with Paul. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's entire life didn't revolve around how things looked from his own earthly perspective. didn't matter what his circumstances were. His entire life was focused on whether or not Christ's work was being accomplished through him. He says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. When that's our focus, discouragement loses much of its power. Because it doesn't matter what I've accomplished and how I feel and what I'm going through and what it's cost me. What it matters is what Christ is accomplishing through me, whether I see it or not. God's work is bigger than us. 
You remember earlier in 1 Kings 19, one of the things that Elijah said in verse 4, 1 Kings 19 and verse 4, at the end of that verse, he says, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. What does he mean by that? I'm not better than my father's. Well, I haven't improved the situation. You know, I haven't accomplished any more than the generation past. I've done all this work, and it's, it's all the same as when I left it. I haven't accomplished anything. I think sometimes we, we measure the success of our life by, you know, have, have, we, have we improved the situation? Have we left the world a better place? Let, let me tell you something. You're never going to leave the world a better place. The world is always going to be the world. The world is always going to be broken. The, the church is always going to have problems. And if we measure our success by, you know, whether or not the, the world has improved. Brethren, the, the world in the end is going to be destroyed. It's not that the world is eventually going to improve to some state where, you know, then, then everybody's going to be serving God the way they're supposed to. We need to measure our success not by whether or not we've, we've left the world a, a better place, but by individuals, by hearts, by God working one soul, one life at a time. God's work is bigger than me. I think that's what he goes on to tell Elijah here. What's the work that God gives Elijah to do? He's saying, I have something great for you to accomplish. He says, no, I I have some people that I want you to go anoint so that they can carry on this work. That's got to be humbling for Elijah. I I got some other people, and they're going to carry on the work. But brethren, that's how it is. It's not about me. It's not about me accomplishing great things and me looking back at my life and thinking, well, you know, look, look at what I've done here. No. God's going to work through me. He's going to work through other people. And I just need to play my role in God's plan, whatever it is. And that work is going to continue after I'm dead and gone. What was significant is not what Elijah accomplished in his life, but what God accomplished through him and will continue to accomplish through countless others. We need to open our eyes to the bigger picture. We need to focus not just on our race, but on equipping and encouraging others after us. Our work is not done until we've handed on the baton to somebody else. And so when we become self-focused on what I've accomplished and what, what I've done, then I'm going to be discouraged. Because in the end, I haven't accomplished anything. I need to focus on what God is doing and making sure that I'm playing the role that he's given me in that plan. But fourthly, we see God encourages him in verse 18 through 21 by reminding him that he is not alone. Here in verse 18, it says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here, Elijah feels that he is the only one. Everybody's turned against the Lord. Nobody's serving the Lord. It's just me, and they want to kill me. God says, no, that's not the case at all. I have 7,000 others, who you may not even know about, whose knees have not bowed down to Baal. The fact is, we are never alone in the work of the Lord. You know, when you think about our situation, you, you look at the people around you right now. You're not alone. 
And you think about us compared to people like Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt. Now, I'm sure he felt all alone. You think about Noah and his family, the only ones delivered out of the global flood. They felt all alone. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being sold into captivity in, in Babylon. And yet, even if, even if we feel all alone, we need to recognize that, that that's not the case. That there are many others who are seeking to serve the Lord, and there have been and there will be. And yet, God designed his people the church, the assembly, as a body to encourage and support one another. We need to be seeking out relationships with those who can build us up, who can encourage us. Sometimes we have the tendency, when we're going through times of discouragement, to isolate ourselves. I'm discouraged, and so I'm going to kind of put myself back here in the corner so I can justify this feeling of aloneness. We need to get out of that. With God's strength and by God's grace, we need to reach out to others who can support us, who can encourage us. We're not alone, and we can't allow ourselves to to force ourselves into that aloneness. We need the relationships that God has provided for us. Look in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5 through 7. Here we see... Paul say, starting verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. How does God comfort the depressed. Well, here he used Titus. Not only Titus, but all these other brethren that had encouraged Titus. They're passing on this comfort and this encouragement from one to the other. That's God's design. God designed his people not to serve him isolated all by themselves, but to seek out assembling with others, to seek out relationships, to be knit together in love, as Colossians 2 and verse 2 says so that we might build up and encourage each other. And you know, one of the individuals that God gave Elijah was Elisha. One of the works that he called him to do is to go and to anoint his successor. Elisha would be there to minister to him. We see at the very last verse of 1 Kings 19. We need to develop the type of relationships among one another, that that our hearts are lifted when we see each other's faces. We need to value the bond and the fellowship that we share. We need to seek out opportunities to spend with our brethren outside of these four walls. You might say, well, I I just don't have any of those type of relationships. You know, I, I just don't have anybody that I can reach out to in that way. Well, how is that going to change? Somebody has to take the initiative relationships, you know, don't, don't just happen. God desires that we build relationships with one another, that we, we each take the initiative, put forward the effort to develop these type of relationships that we can build up and encourage each other. And even if we are in a Noah situation, even if we are in a Daniel situation where we feel like we're all alone, we are not alone. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, 
we're reminded, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, he just talked about in chapter 11, all of those who have gone on before us, men and women of faith, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Even if you feel like you're all alone, you have Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Daniel and Paul and Peter cheering you on. That's the picture that we have here. We're running our race and those who have gone on before us say, God is faithful. God has worked through us. We have crossed that finish line. You can too. They have faced the same challenges. James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature such as ours. They had their emotional struggles. They had their depression. They had their discouragement. And yet they finished their race. And they are encouraging us from on high to finish ours as well. And more than that, our eyes can be fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is there to pick us up, to help us continue. So what is the solution to discouragement? There's nothing wrong with going through times of discouragement. We're going to be weary. We're going to be worn out. That's okay. But how do we handle that? We need to know that God cares for us. Know that God is compassionate, long-suffering. We can look to him for sympathy, mercy, and grace. We need to know that God doesn't only accomplish his work through the, the great and the mighty, the wonderful things that might be impressive to us. God accomplishes his work many times in, in very small and imperceptible ways. Our work doesn't have to be grand and glorious to accomplish his will within our lives. We need to be willing to see past our own emotions. We need to see the greater picture of the Lord's work. We need to work together. We need to, to focus on the work that we can do to build up others uh, and not allow ourselves to, to turn internally. And we need to seek out the type of relationships to support and encourage each other um, so that we can be mutually strengthened and comforted with the comfort that God provides us. Are you discouraged today? Have you let it drag you down? Do you need Jesus to lift you back up and to get back into the race? It's okay to struggle with emotions. Elijah did. Jesus suffered many of the same things, uh, suffered the same uh, emotional as well as physical struggles that we do. But the question is, how do we handle that? Are we willing to, to seek out God's solution? Are we willing to let him pick us back up, to get back into the work? Or maybe you've never started the race. Maybe you haven't crossed the starting line. You can't cross the finish line until you cross the starting line, brother. If you recognize today that you need to commit your life to the Lord, by his grace, you can start a new life. You can bury your old life of sin in the waters of baptism. You can be raised to a hope, a living hope, of eternity in God's presence. If there's any need that you have today to, to ask for the prayers of these brethren, to, to repent in some public way, or to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, we want to give you that opportunity now as we stand and as we sing together.